Welcome to Advance Your Art. If you are interested in making money from your art, using your artistic background to your advantage when switching careers, or if you are just plain stuck, you've come to the right place. Now let's get started and have some fun with your host, Eureka Talbo. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Advance Your Art with Eureka Talbo. If you're interested in learning how to build a company, make money from your art, or if you're just feeling stuck, you've come to the right place. Every week I sit down with a creative entrepreneur to discuss the who, what, and why of their journey. If you like this episode, please remember to like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Today, I'm sitting down with Maria Bredo, award-winning New York-based contemporary art advisor, author, and curator. Bit of a tongue twister, but I love it. Maria, hello, how are you? Uh, I feel like I could also go on and on about your accomplishments, but how are you and welcome to the show. Hi, Yuri. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm well. It's a really beautiful, crisp day in New York. So everything is going right today. That's wonderful. And it's almost fall. Fall is my favorite time of New York. I really especially miss New York at that time. Um, and I know that's coming up right around the corner. So it's even better. We're waiting for you here. <laughs> Perfect. I plan on being there. So um, for my listeners who are less familiar with you and your work, how do you describe yourself and what you do? I am an art advisor first and foremost. And what I do is I build art collections for collectors at any stage. It could be young collector it could be somebody who's been collecting for a long time it could be somebody who wants to overhaul their collections or start from scratch with something new mm -hmm. and uh, that takes an enormous amount of time and effort because the art market is a 50 billion global market that has grown at a pace that none of us even could have potentially forecasted when I started this business 13 years ago. And so that means I have to be aware and on top and uh, checking every emerging artist, every mid-career artist, every blue chip artist, the auction records, the prices, the, the gallery shows, the art fairs. And look, not even the pandemic has slowed this down. I know that certain galleries have reported a 20% less sales mm -hmm. however the auction houses have come really strong and so what that tells us is that there are a lot of people who are buying online and this is obviously part of moving into more and more technology but also opening up the whole world of acquiring art to gen z and and millennials who probably are too shy sometimes or a little bit intimidated because also th those are generations that grew with the screens, right? And so face-to-face right. -face engagements are difficult. Anyway, so uh, the, the other thing I do is I curate shows independently. I get invited by galleries around the world that ask me, you know, or, or even in the States, mm -hmm. uh, can you please uh, curate a show for us and bring your energy and come up with a concept and things like that. Yeah. And uh, that's, what I do. I am also an educator. I, I designed and put together a creativity for business class online. That is a very important project for me because I got to work directly with many different people from many different backgrounds and give them uh, what I learned in all these years of building a seven-figure business after transitioning from being a corporate attorney. So yeah. I have my hand on many things. It's uh, confusing, I understand, but I think also, <laughs> I, I also see myself as a very dynamic entrepreneur. And when you are in the world of building your own business and brand, you do have your hand sometimes in many things. And I don't say this in the sense that everybody who's building a business has to have a variety of different products or services, but I do because they complement each other. And so it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. So there's a lot of places to start. So let's start with corporate attorney. So what's what I find even more fascinating is, so you, you went to Harvard Law, corporate attorney, then transitioned to the art world. Talk to me about that and what that was like. So first off, actually, what made you want to become a lawyer and then go to Harvard and then that transition from Harvard Law 
corporate attorney to what you're doing now? I grew up in Venezuela and in South America, and I was born in a very traditional Catholic family with sort of very defined roles and things like that. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that at least I was born after there was a little bit more of female revolution. My mother is an entrepreneur and so is my dad. Mm -hmm. And they all, they both went to college and whatnot, but they, they took different paths after. And the premise was, it, you know, in this house, we are engineers and doctors and architects and, and real things according to them, right? <laughs> I mean, quote unquote, real right. things. We don't do hobbies here, right? Like, I mean, artists, graphic designers, things like that, those are hobbies, right? And so this is something like you get programmed into and, and you grow up with these things because it's cultural too, right? I mean, when you are in a place like I was back and I was, I grew up in the freedom, the, not the, not the new Venezuela that is the communist regime. I still okay. grew up in the freedom and you don't really have a lot of options when culturally those things are not really accepted, right? right. I mean, like, because the country itself did not have the platform to, let's say, nurture and support a fashion designer or a graphic designer or somebody in the arts. So I was really very good at writing. Uh, I love to read. And I also had this inclination towards like social justice and mm -hmm. things like that. So, you know, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I, I was a very regimented student for myself. I was very disciplined and I wanted, because I wanted to leave. That's the thing. I wanted out of Venezuela. I really, I never fought, I mean, I'm Latina and I love to dance and, you know, those values are very important. Like the values of, of South American people, family, things like that. Those mm -hmm. things are very important to me, but the countries and the culture and the corruption, and I knew where it was going to, I was like, I need out because my ethics and the ethics of this country do not align. And so I worked very hard in school and I, and I knew I didn't really have many options because I didn't like math. I didn't like blood, you know? So I, I knew I couldn't be an engineer or an architect because I, de I despised math mm -hmm. and I knew I couldn't be a doctor. So the, of those prestigious things that my parents thought would make me happy, the only thing left was being an attorney. And so, you know, I... With, with the incredible help of my father, who had been an, he came from very humble background, but worked very hard and had a savings that was for my education. That was it. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we lived on a rental, like, you know, cars were shitty. Everything was really like, but, but the money was for like two things for me to go and travel mm -hmm. and for the education. That mm -hmm. was it. So with the help of my father, well, I, I, I applied to a variety of different institutions and um, I remember NYU also accepted me and uh, and Harvard accepted me so um, I moved obviously I mean it's like yeah. who who would say no to that right and and I was so young and so excited about this new thing and it was like literally the ticket out of everything right like I mean it, I am leaving this place that even though it breaks my heart to leave my parents behind I know that I am going to do so much better because I'm going to find the system that actually values meritocracy, hard work, you know, and an imperfect system as it is. This whole the world is imperfect, right. but it was more aligned with me, and so that's how I made it. And I, I you know, I mean, it's an extraordinary experience, actually, particularly for a foreigner coming from a third world country to suddenly be in Harvard Square or like, you know, in the middle of the whole kind of like, it's a movie set in a mm -hmm. way, right? And um, when I graduated and moved to New York and passed the bar and all that, it's such an effort, man. It's just terrible. So, and I started working in uh, different law firms okay. and I was like, nope, <laughs> this, <laughs> this is, but you know, it took me a long time. It took me a long time because in the beginning, you try to make sense of the effort that you've, the money that you've spent, mm -hmm. the effort, 
the, the bar, you know, the whole thing, right? And so you try to make sense of the career and you find it exciting that the partners give you ins with like clients and that you can listen to meetings and that, you know, they are humongous transactions because everything in big law firms in New York City, it, medium and big law firms is gigantic, right? I guess it, right. when billions was not a number, I was working with billions, seriously. When mm. billions, nobody was talking about that, I was already doing billion dollar deals which were, I mean, I was the little thing, right? But I was involved on those things and you have a sense of like, I'm, I'm somewhere that is interesting, that is very big and I'll better learn what I'm doing here because I'm not just like pulling the blog, right? Mm-hmm. And it took me nine years of like doing that and, and ultimately realizing that this was not for me, that I hated it, that I you know, that I was like killing the entrepreneur, the artist, the the visionary, like there was nothing I could do. Honestly, the, the most exciting part for me when I was an attorney is when I took pro bono, because you are sort of mm-hmm. like somewhat not, you're not obligated, but it's a beautiful thing. And they encourage, and that's actually, I think that's fantastic. They encourage attorneys to take pro bono cases uh, from outside of like, and so those were the most rewarding, like I help an entire family from Peru to get their green card, you know, and even I was not an immigration lawyer, but that was so easy, right? I was like, oh, I can do this following the steps of what they tell me what to do. And so that was the most rewarding thing for me as an attorney. It was not the General Electric $5 billion spot, spinning off this thing and like, you know, the venture capitalist or whoever kind of like turning it into a different company. That was very unsatisfying. And I had a, I had my first baby in, in 2008 and I went on maternity leave and I came back and Literally, the day I came back is when Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns went to hell and then Bernie made of it. It was just like this huge snowball of things and nothing made sense. And I was like, what am I doing here? You know? And so I, I quit. I quit. And I told my husband, I'm going to open my own business. And he was like, what? And uh, <laughs> I hired a web designer and I hired a woman who was helping me with some messaging and trying to get my name out there on like blogs. I mean, it was just, I, I, you know, the, the thing is I had some guts to do that because I was making already a sizable amount of money. I had great benefits, uh, car service because every night, you know, after eight or 9 PM, you had a car service because, uh, you always stayed until eight or 9 PM every day. Right. So, I had gods, but, you know, no gods, no glory, man. So, yeah. so I'm here and I couldn't have been more accurate in my prediction of what my future would have, you know, been mm-hmm. like had I stayed there or had I not taken this uh, step of opening this company that has given me so much joy and purpose and success. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. So I'm... I'm particularly interested in this because of even the timing that you chose to do this. So I I remember 2008, 2009 very well in New York. I was also there and I was on the other side of the creative industries where all of that collapsed. So to choose to go from a high paid, high powered corporate attorney to the arts that were struggling at that time, especially in New York, I find even more exciting. How do you think about fear so even in like even before this your your journey from a foreign country to boston and to harvard and then you're in new york in the you know the pinnacle of of finance and law making a very good salary the economy collapses and you're probably probably set on that side and you choose to go do something else that's even more let's say up in the air so how do you think through your decisions and think through fear when you're in that that type of of, uh, area you know i think fear is a way of your because you feel fear in your body a lot right i mean it's not just fears are not necessarily of the mind they have a they have a core relationship with how you feel in your body and so i think that fear is a way of your body telling you change is a threat and you're not going to be in familiar territory right i mean remember Mm -hmm. we have a limbic 
brain that you know it's millions of years and and that we used to run from tigers and you know things like that because it was a survival instinct right and so we tend to go for the path of least resistance as humans because we need to conserve energy and we need to protect ourselves so you know I was definitely very afraid of doing that and quitting that job, but see the pain, here's the deal. Mm -hmm. The pain of staying there was so much worse than actually the fear of the unknown. And that is how I think most people who are in difficult situations make decisions that actually impact their lives is, is the fear is not as bad as the pain. Right. <laughs> okay, so you moved, transitioned from corporate attorney. Why, what particularly, let me try this again. Why did you choose this area of the arts versus another area? Well, I, you know, see, my, my when I was growing up, my parents and my grandparents were avid art aficionados not mm -hmm. big art collectors themselves but mostly people who loved a museum a gallery visiting artists and it was such an interesting thing for me because I was always there with them going to these places and I told you like my father had this money like you go travel right when I was 15 right. they sent me a month away to Europe Ooh. and I was able yeah I, that was like my thing right like yeah. they sent me a month away and I was able to and I was so moved and always so curious about the decisions that artists made in the Renaissance and why things happen and the museums and, and that whole thing of like art collecting. And, and, you know, so this had started with me being a really young person. And so my training with the arts started in real life and not in the halls of, you know, academia. And so, sure. um, when I moved to New York, I started buying art for myself because I was an attorney and I was making money so I could buy little things for me. Mm -hmm. And I started building relationships with certain people in the arts, like gallery owners and some artists and certain people. And so I thought it was a fascinating thing. And the, you know, I went to the first edition of Art Basel in Miami Beach that happened actually right after 9-11. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, I'm taking a, a plane literally in December of 2000 and want to go and see art. I really like this thing, right? And I've, I've, I've had talked to a lot of friends who uh, asked me for my opinion. Like I, I tell, well, look, I mean, I went to see this. And, you know, it was a very different world. There was no Instagram. There were no guides. Mm -hmm. There were no blogs, nothing. You had to actually be out kicking the, the streets and, and the pavement, like you had to be out in the world to actually know what was going on with the art world. And my friends started giving me a lot of validation saying, you know, the artist you recommended, oh my God, is getting so famous. I read about him or her or whatever in the New York Times, or, you know, you always find the best things. And, and, you know, those things stay in the back of your mind because when you're, the, the loss I felt uh, being in the office of an attorney, it was an it was this void, this emptiness that couldn't really be filled with anything. If they would have told me, we give you two million bucks to stay, they would have not. But they, if they would have told me that, I would have said no, yeah. because I was so sad and empty and demotivated by everything, by my and you know that these people are great people in the in the sense that they work really hard. They were very honest people. Uh, the partners give their lives to you know these jobs. It's it's incredible. Yeah. And but I didn't like them. If you know what I mean, like now that I now that I'm not there, I like them from like a dis. You know what I mean? Sure. But like I just like I, I don't I don't want to be hanging out with these people anymore. There's mm -hmm. no growth for me here. You know, there's no growth as a human. Right. And so. This is the this is the impetus, right? I mean, and 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 this is uh, the, the 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 I put together my passions as a child, right? The things that I wanted to do, the things that were intriguing to me, and also as a vehicle to make money, right? Because I saw there were other people doing the job of an art advisor, but they were so stern and so serious. Mm -hmm. Nobody was blogging. Nobody was using social media. You know, yeah. I came with this whole kind of fresh thing, like a rookie, right? I was like. 
I'm going to make this so much fun. And I'm going to hang the art on the walls in your house. And if you want me to design your house, I'll do it too. Because back then I was also working with design. I don't do that years that I don't do that. But but I came with like this kind of very fresh and unusual approach mm -hmm. of also making the art world more democratic, not, not cheap, but democratic, right? Like I was writing a blog and I was using very easy words. People, oh, I finally understood, right? Like they were like, oh, yeah. I was writing guides, how to buy, what is a print, what is a one of a kind. Now those things are commonplace, let's say. But right. when I started, nobody was doing it. So I had a lot to explore for myself and to digest. And I was curious enough that nothing, nothing to me was, you know, like, oh, they know that. Or like, oh, this is not interesting. Everything that crossed my path mm -hmm. was game. And, uh, you know, that's how I started building social media following. That's how I started building reputation. And, uh, you know, uh, it just, it, it was meant to be. Mm -hmm. It was meant to be. You so you have award-winning taste and and design aesthetic. Where do you think that came from? Is that something that's like naturally in you? Has that something that you have developed over the years, based off of uh, either a, a training informally or formally? But how has your aesthetic journey My, changed over the years? Well, yeah. I think that. A lot of the the things I learned when I was a child, as I told you, like by being exposed to things that were beautiful, right? Like, or, yeah. or things that were in, it, they don't have to be beautiful, but they were interesting, right? And, and, and being able to be in the company of this artist that my parents had, uh, you know, being acquaintances with or, or, or being able to go to all these museums with my father and so on. So that was step one, let's say, right? And as I, as I, when I moved to the, to the United States and I was able also to keep exploring and, and, and seeing new places, new museums, new galleries and whatnot. So it's a lot of intuitive and also an eye education that connects also the brain because I learned so many things theoretically by being curious and wanting to get more information about a particular art movement or things like that. Mm -hmm. And obviously when I started, I was not as good as I am right now because I had been, you know, nine years or 10 years of my life in a law firm where you barely have any time off. But yes, I did go out and build relationships with, with certain people in the arts and this and that. And then, it, it just gets, you get more and more visual information. And so for me, this visual information, I'm the type of person who absorbs it very easily and stores that information in my brain mm -hmm. in a way that I am able to do a lot of pattern recognition. And honestly, a lot of people ask me similar questions to this. And the truth is, you got to pay attention. And we have the high, biggest crisis of attention that we've ever had because people have, you know, multiple devices open at the same time and listening to a podcast and answering a text and seeing Instagram and recording a video live and, you know, and crossing the street at the same time, right? This is all happening. And right. so uh, part of being creative and part of being able to actually spot opportunities for business is to actually pay attention. And sounds so silly, but I guarantee you that if you think about it, you're gonna realize that you spend a lot of time not paying attention and being very distracted. And what I was doing all that time was paying attention. And also I saw the void. There was an empty spot for me because there were not, enough people humanizing the arts and making them accessible. And I think that's where I shown. I make things very easy for my clients. I was not a snob. Like they are billionaires, but that doesn't mean that I that I made the whole thing harder or more complicated or like or that I try to, you know, put a, a veil of like mystery around the on the contrary. It was just like this is for all, right? I mean, this is how we do it. And this is this is how we are going to understand this whole thing together yeah so you made an interesting comment about being able to let's say shut out the noise and and focus on 
details. Do you, is that something that has been naturally, is that thing you naturally do or able to that focus that intently on details and pay attention? Is that something you've developed over the years? Um, I think that when I was a child, I was not really like paying attention to many details. I mean, or that was not necessarily like you know, if you would, for example, say, what did you do in your art class? Were you just like making little dots and like being super <laughs> anal about them? No, I right. was like, you know, I it was really fun and like, I love it, but I was not. Okay. I think that I have a very good awareness of like my spatial, you know, surroundings, right? I have a very good awareness of where I am and 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 why right or or things like that like mm -hmm. for example this is funny i hope people can um relate to me if my husband leaves something out of place i notice that immediately right and i really i'm like but but to him it's like no i just like okay but so what is it the end of the world if the if the knife is not where it's meant to be or something i immediately see it like my children i don't think they see it either and I'm like, am I just like a strange monster with like a disease or something? Like, because like that knife does not go there, yeah. you know? And so I, I think that I train myself, I think, because I see so much art every week in person and I'm paying attention to the execution, the colors, you know, the, the, the texture, the subject matter. So I'm just paying attention. See, mm -hmm. like, even as fast as we move right now, I'm paying attention. And so I think that I have also, this new career has allowed me to be very fixated on things because I'm constantly looking at art. And it's one of the exercises I give to my students is like, please fixate yourself on things for a couple of minutes, describe them to yourself, stop, to see things. And mm -hmm. I promise if you do this every day, you're going to start seeing business opportunities, you know, things that make sense to you. I mean, there's a whole theory about paying attention. Um, there is a woman who wrote a book uh, and her name is Amy Herman. And she wrote a whole book about paying attention to things through art. And I think that it's a very important, actually Yale, um, the, the medical school in Yale requires the first year students to take a mandatory course on paying attention through art because it's one of the best ways for people to actually realize and, and see things from different perspectives. If mm -hmm. they start paying more attention to art then and understand the different elements, then they actually can start paying more attention to the patients in the emergency room so, you know, the, I yeah. think that's the, the perks of my business is that I have to do it for a living. <laughs> right. <laughs> so let's let's actually talk about your class. So it's yes. uh, program Jumpstart. Is that correct? Yes, that's so, correct. So please tell me about that. Jumpstart was born two and a half years ago, and this was my desire to give back to a different type of community that was not my my big clients or the people who hire me to curate shows and things like that, right? And I realized that it was an important pivotal moment. I had been running my business for 10 years. And I said, what wouldn't it be fun if I can somewhat uh, design a curriculum of all the things that I have learned, how I've built my business with creativity, because that's really my mantra is like, coming up with ideas of value, not creativity, arts and crafts, or creativity, making a cake. No. Creativity is for everybody in every profession, from dentists to lawyers to accountants. It's coming up with ideas of value that have a relevancy now. That's that's actually the concept of relevance. It's like, it's, it's, a, it's good for now, right? Mm -hmm. Like we, we need to serve the customers now, not the customers from 1981, the customers from 2021. And so I realized for a long time, I've seen that the attitudes, the skill sets and the habits of the most important artists, the artists that I've worked with, some of them are the most important artists in the world. I've been lucky enough to be close to them or to learn from them. Uh, and they're entrepreneurs who've built the most successful businesses, you know, from Steve Jobs to uh, Estee Lauder, 
you know, Bezos, whatever. Yeah. This artist and these entrepreneurs are equally the same, basically. I mean, they have the same habits, the same skill sets. And sometimes it's all about the perseverance of actually building those habits. I mean, people aren't necessarily born with more or less skills. Mm -hmm. People, all of us have a tremendous amount of creativity as kids and formal education and society basically wants to drown that, you know, because we are in a system of a standardized test. We're in a system of like curriculums that, you know, school curriculums that those are actually from 1981. Right. And we have lost also this ability to think on our feet, to be critical, right? Of like, or to, to be able to say, this is not working out anymore, to be a contrarian, right? Or, mm -hmm. And so this course is for people who feel stuck, demotivated, or people who actually feel that they can't be creative or they cannot come up with better ideas or that they have no idea how to, you know, build a business from scratch or how to pivot the practices. So this is basically a course that brings all that inside from out of, you know, out of their brains and into the world. And it's divided in, uh, you know, four core modules with like smaller, you know, videos inside. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to navigate and digest. It's very professional. It's on Kajabi. It's a beautiful platform. Mm -hmm. It's it's super high end, the whole thing. I couldn't have done it without Kajabi, honestly. And hey, Kajabi. Uh, and uh, it has bonuses with, you know, the artists I interviewed are people ranging from very young to mid-career. Okay. All of them made between six and, and seven figures easily every year. Uh, so I wanted also to make sure that on the other side, if there are people who are artists taking the course, they stop having this fear of mingling business and art or business and their, you know, their output of what they put out in the world. Because the truth is the most successful artists in the world are the best business people as well, right? And so we have to stop this whole kind of myth that creativity and business don't come together because one thing actually does not have anything to do with the other. In other words, the concept of creativity is for anybody, right? So right. let's stop also shunning people out, right? I don't want to shun people out of the concept of creativity, right? You might be a housewife right now listening to this, thinking about what is your next thing, and you are full of creativity. You just have to make it alive and follow a certain amount of habits to see that come to life again. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I when I launched the course, I, I had a different format because I wanted to be with my students for four weeks on this very long Zoom calls and things like that. And so after three launches and, uh, you know, 100 people who took the course over that, you know, the year and a half or whatever it was, I wanted to make it evergreen because I, first of all, I, I couldn't be uh, available for everybody, you know, two hours over, you know, four weeks. It was, and, and so, and I wanted more people to benefit from it. Mm -hmm. And so now I just uh, have a, once a month, we have a call where I answer questions or I encourage them also to email me. Do you have questions about the materials and things like that? And I just let them do it. You know, I, I let them go through the modules and it's just self-paced and you can do it at any time, anywhere. It doesn't matter if you are traveling or even if you don't live in the United States, whatever it is, it's just available there for anybody who want to take it. Yeah. And I think that. It's very different. I don't think there is anything out there that actually looks or feels or that is like my course. And so I have enormous pride in, in it. And I also think that seeing my students' results, I get that the, the program works, but obviously people have to do the exercises. And, right. you know, cause like, it's not just like, oh, I watched the thing and it didn't work. No, people have to do it, you know, <laughs> a little bit of work. But it, it does have, I mean, I've, I've gotten amazing feedback from my students and I'm very happy to see them turning their businesses around, quitting careers, moving cities because of, you know, how they are now able to have confidence in their ideas and how they present them and things like that. Oh, that's wonderful. That's, it's always great to have those kind of results to you from a, from a class. Um, so that's fantastic. I'm, because of your 
because of how deep you are in the art industry, I'm curious to hear what trends you're watching right now. So we're coming out of the pandemic at, at some point, you know, how, how did things, you, you mentioned sales were, were still going strong during the pandemic, but what are you looking at right now for 2022, um, even in the NFT digital art space and the physical art space, what, what are you looking at and how do you find ideas for that? I think in the the tangible art world, the yeah. trends continue to be a lot of support and a lot of excellent young uh, female artists and uh, young black artists, mostly figurative and but that doesn't mean we're we're shutting down abstract. Uh, I think that people still have a lot of appetite. Collectors have a lot of appetite for for the human figure. And this is okay. something that has been, you know, for 600 years. The right. problem is that now there are way too many. And so it turns the whole thing into a very murky, complicated scenario because there are very, very good artists and, and, and now there are too many doing figurations. So they mm. might look like the other. And also, are you betting uh, on something that has already gotten so expensive? What if this artist has no future because at this point there are like, you know, 100 people doing the same? I don't know. So then there are certain things like that. And obviously, the Black artists are very important because for so long they were not recognized. Right. And I, I feel uh, so thrilled to say that ever since I opened my company, I was working with Black artists because I was incredibly curious to hear their story through art mm -hmm. and uh it's funny because i always say half jokingly but the truth is uh like all these big big galleries massive galleries just learned that there were black artists like about five years ago you know what i mean mm -hmm. uh i buy from them but i i know they know that i'm like oh okay cool uh, <laughs> you know uh good good to know that you actually realize that they existed five years ago and uh um the NFTs is a very interesting space. And what I think that the NFTs are bringing, it's not only people just buying, you know, videos and, and little animated GIFs or GIFs or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, it's more the what it brings to authenticity because having a public ledger that has, you know, Ethereum, um, and, and the blockchain, right? And having a string, a code that actually identifies a piece of art. And I'm talking about intangible piece of art in this right. case, but it could also be a digital asset to be able to trace, to be able to build uh, royalties every time the artwork is sold, to be able to also identify who the owner is, right? It's These are right. things that have never happened in the art world. And in that sense, the art world that is the part I could never fix because it will continue. I think it'll continue to be very mysterious for, for a long time because it has mm -hmm. been and it has a long, it's a, it's a, it's a really complicated asset, right? Like, I mean, non-fungible assets are complicated. Right. Uh, and, um, but I see this whole kind of, when we have a boom like this and something happens like that, $69 million people yeah. sold at Christie's. When we have things like that, everybody is like the gold rush during Calif like California, right? Like, ah, let's all move to California to find the gold. And then you get there and there's nothing, right? And right. so people have to be slightly careful of that because, you know, and I'm not against anything. I'm actually, I love NFTs. I know a lot about them. And I am watching the whole thing daily. I talk about this all the time. Mm -hmm. But remember, NFTs can only be bought with crypto. And right. so let's be very mindful of those things for a second, because it's not like a dollar is a dollar, a euro is a euro. And there is a whole system of a, an economy that actually supports the value of fiat currencies right but when we're talking about crypto we have things that we don't control we have elon musk talking and then the next day he cannot talk and then people are like he's not talking and right. we have money laundering and we have a lot of also dark deals that come from asia and that you know uh, drug dealing, and I'm sorry, is the truth, right? I mean, like, mm -hmm. there's no traceability. There's no, like, you know, I mean, nobody knows really. I mean, there's traceability with NFT, but there's no, with paying with crypto, you disappear, right? right? I mean, like, 
And so that's why all these people who are crazy asking for, you know, threatening people on, on, online and whatever, they are always asking for crypto because there's no, you know, there's no record there. And so let's just be mindful of that. If something you love and you want to collect NFTs and, you know, you go to all those websites like Super Rare mm -hmm. or Nifty Gateway and things like that, and you just want to have fun with them, please go and do so. But, you know, I have a friend who always tells me these things are for the system. If you just want to do it, because this is actually a piece of history and we're the first you know, we are the first generation of the crypto, just do it. Yeah. But be very careful to try to speculate with it or kind of make yourself wealthy with it because it could backfire if you really don't know 100% what you're doing. And there are people who have spent the whole, and I know those people, huh? They spend their whole, the day they work on whatever they do and the nights they spend following crypto on like chat, chat messages, boards mm -hmm. and things and WhatsApp messages and and it's like a, you have a second life once you get into the whole crypto world. And I think that's fascinating. But whoever has the time to do that, then, you know, and not sleep, then you, you're hurting your your whole body. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. I mean? <laughs> oh, I love this. I feel like we could have a whole separate conversation about this. Um, right. For yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Exactly. We'll do this for the, for the next one. Because I've, I've met some people who... Um, have whole, like they have houses in the metaverse. So they're, you know, they're yeah, yeah. digital houses where they've got NFTs on the wall. And in order for them to see that, they have to go into the, like. With like uh, AR and, uh, yeah. you know, um, yeah, augmented reality and the. Yeah, I mean, exactly. it's, it's fascinating. Separate... It's just like, I still, ha I still have a, 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 my flavor, my favorite flavor is real life kind mm -hmm. of thing. You know, I like. <laughs> I like to see things and touch people and like, you know, feel, and maybe we'll start doing more of a more advanced AR where you can have that. Right. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it, again, it's fascinating. I'm not saying this is not something to actually pay attention to, or I'm not saying this is something that is not going to have a long lasting impact in society and how we see things. Right. But we are not obliterating real life because as humans, we are still here and we're made of, a, a very interesting combination of DNA, uh, you know, flesh and blood and muscles and things like that, right? So we still yeah. don't have a hundred percent. I don't know. Maybe that we do, like clone people, you know, who are like <laughs> out there in the world. I mean, if you guys go watch Free Guy, you know, you'll with Ryan. Um, and I think that that's an interesting movie to mm -hmm. consider about ethical implications of AI and things like that. But that's for another talk and another yeah. day. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, so I, I was curious just about how you're looking. And I think you've actually nailed it on, let's say, the, the traditional art collectors versus the crypto space itself. Because like, you know, people immediately came out about how much he hates NFTs, thinks it's all garbage traded his ethereum directly it's uh, i can it's, it's in um i think his he did an interview with new york times or new yorker about how much oh, he, new yorker yeah yeah about how much he hates nfts and just did it because he knew he could get a bunch of money for it um but the only like the large sales that are happening are are people who already have a lot of ethereum and so it's an insular market it's not somebody who is a traditional collector from what i've seen anyway comes in and says now i'm going to learn how to trade my fiat to ethereum and then buy this nft and then store it somewhere so that's why i'm i was also kind of curious to hear your thoughts on the traditional versus the insular ethereum market kind of propping itself up to make sure that nfts are sticking around for that reason well also remember right i mean big galleries and auction houses have a very hefty overhead in right. the 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 overarching mandate of the auction house is actually make money. Uh, it <laughs> right. is. It is as simple as that. They are not in the business of building up artists' careers. They are not in the business of like, you know, how do we make this artist be, you know, the, the next thing in the museum? They, they, no. And, and it's fine. Look, uh, who am I? I they've built a fantastic business, right? right? And so when they are in the business of making money, they will take anything on consignment. Mm -hmm. Because 
the mandate is the more inventory we have, the more online auctions we can do. Because mm. the the you know the jewel of the crown thing, it's, it's reserved for May and November. The night auctions, that you know the 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 serious stuff like the real right. fabulous Picasso that nobody has seen for twenty five years, or the Basquiat that was you know in this collection that nobody. So that those things are very specific, but the more inventory an auction house has, the more online, you know, and then, and then how do they reach the Gen Z and the millennial and the young millennial, right? Because millennials, the older ones are 40. So it's not that they are kids, right? Right. And so it's important to know that the auction house has a very important mission, which is if we engage the children who hold on to crypto, they might also be the guys who are going to buy my Basquiat. Right. Ten, maybe even five years on the line, 10 years on the line or whatever. Right. And so in big, big, uh, big galleries also have the same type of uh, mentality and there's nothing wrong about it. And, and there is nothing inherently wrong about it. Right. I mean, it's just like Whoever wants to say it's like, oh, but you know, if Sotheby's is doing it or Christie's, then it must be legit. Then please remember that there is an in the, the, the desire of those people is to be everywhere right. with as much inventory as possible so that they can report numbers that actually make sense. Yeah. And th that makes sense and that that keep, you know, multiplying year after year after year. You know, it's like I, I th I'm not sure, but I think last year, the year of the pandemic, I think that if I'm not mistaking Christie's reported sales of, I think, $4 billion, $4 billion in sales. Wow. Yeah. And, I'm, I, and I hope not to be mistaken, and I'm sorry, because I wasn't preparing to like talk about auction houses. <laughs> but, <I know. laughs> but what I'm saying is, it's, it's like, Yes, we're willing to take a chance on new technologies and do fun things, mm -hmm. but there is also a desire to make money, right? right. And uh, yeah. and you know, if you want to live in the crypto and the parallel, and and it's fine. Nobody says no. The the tangible assets as as art will forever be because mm -hmm. there are excavations in you know Ephesus of houses that had been there since you know year one after Christ and they have uh you know on the walls because there was there were in canvases the frescoes of those rich families mm -hmm. you know frescoes of painters who came and did like full of colors and things like that and you know I think that if you look them up online on the Ephesus ruins in Turkey you can see that and when the renaissance in Italy happened this is when actually we you know started collecting art with uh, you know, paintings and sculptures and things like that. So it's a very, very long tradition of human beings wanting to live with actual art in the actual places and not just like their virtual homes. And I think that's not going to go away anytime soon, not in our lifetimes and not in the next life either. But if you are an artist who who have a penchant for digital and you're good at it and you have great videos and you want to make money out of it. I don't see a reason why you shouldn't jump on the whole NFT, right. you know, trend and have your wallet and your crypto and have fun there and, and make sure that you use systems that do not consume that much energy because, you know, there is another issue. It's not very eco-friendly to mint an NFT because of the amount of energy that it uh, generates um, and consumes. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we have to be, I mean, uh, now they are coming up with different ways of minting NFTs that do not diminish the quality and that they have less impact on the footprint, on the carbon footprint. So, you know, um, I am as, a, as, a, as, a, as an entrepreneur and a business owner and a woman of today, I'm not opposed anything that is legal and mm -hmm. that it doesn't hurt anybody and that it does not go against the laws of nature, you mm -hmm. know? So if you, <laughs> you guys, you guys want to live in the parallel world of crypto, I'm cool with that. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm super cool with that. And you know, if, if my clients want to do it, I'll tell them how to do it and yeah. I'll point them in the right direction. Wonderful. Wonderful. I'm, uh, so I'm, I'm fascinated in how this is going to evolve. And so we'll definitely, on our next conversation, definitely talk in, uh, more about that. Um, before I let you go, what would you say has been the best advice that you were ever given? That I have 
given myself to someone that someone gave you oh the best advice that i've been given you know i i think that it was my father i had told him i had moved to new york and i had told him that I did not like certain, you know, certain attitudes of certain people who actually also came from Harvard and that it was not, I, I just felt that I shouldn't have those people around me or whatever. And, you know, mm -hmm. he told me something, you're in a position right now of actually looking to add and for pluses rather than subtract and minuses, right? And 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 he was very wise in his advice because what he was telling me is like, you need a community of people to actually succeed and thrive no matter where you are, mm -hmm. no matter what you do. If you start just by, you know, kicking and screaming or whatever, because somebody like gave you the wrong eye one day, you're going to end up in the wrong place, uh, you know, emotionally and also for your success. And I think he was so right because I, I think that, you know, even in this world of isolation and, and people who just think they can do everything out of a screen, there's no way that we can survive with a robust community uh, of people who believe in us, people who extend a hand when we need it, people who buy our products and gave us business and people who open a door when all of them have been shut. And so I, I think that's one of the best advices I've ever. And I think about that often, you know, like it's, it's more important to add than to subtract and I'm not saying that the quality of the people have to be horrible and you have to hang out with horrible people. And no, I just hope that people have a little bit more of like a perspective when I say this mm -hmm. is that there are many little things that people do that can actually bog us, but they are little in comparison to what it is to actually have that relationship around, you know, you don't have to be the best friend of that person, but you also don't have to burn the bridges with everybody just because you are so set in your ways. We live in an era where everybody's being canceled. Mm -hmm. uh, relationships and friendships are being terminated because of political reasons. I think this is absolutely tragic. It's very dramatic that we can't have uh, opposite ideas and still be able to sit down at the same table. And um, you know, all in my heart really is all about community and impact and influence in a positive way. You know, you cannot be a leader if you only have one person around you. <laughs> you just cannot. <laughs> oh, that's so true. Excellent. Maria, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. This was absolutely amazing. I really appreciate it. If the listeners would like to see more of your work or take your class, where are the best places they can go to do that? They can go to mariabrito.com and that's B-R-I-T-O.com. And uh, there are links to everything. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter that is for free and I love it. And it actually intertwines art history with business today, with creativity, and it's very accessible. People love it. I've, uh, I give the strategies and it's all under five minutes. So I, I will continue doing it for free because I absolutely love the feedback. I love to do it. It's, uh, it's wonderful. And the class is also there. If you want to enroll, all the links are there. So Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And we'll put a, all the links in, in the show notes. And for the listeners, uh, Maria has been very gracious and, and given you a discount. So that will be in the show notes. So look for that and click right through and uh, take her class. Uh, but again, thank you so much, Maria. I really appreciated this. Thank you, Yuri. You're wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Advance Your Art with Yuri Cataldo. If you like this episode, please remember to give us a five-star rating, like, and share with a friend. Our theme music is written and mixed by Chicago-based composer Ryan Black of Blackbones Collaborative. To listen to the full catalog of our episodes, go to advanceyourart.com. To see what I'm working on or book a time with me, or buy a copy of my book, Be Left Behind, go to yurikataldo.com. Thank you so much, and have a great day.